You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this day of reflection and an opportunity for healing as communities across the country mark the second annual National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And as understanding grows, more Canadians are wearing orange in recognition. Our Paul Johnson has more on the importance of this day. The BC Residential School survivor, who is the reason we wear the color, and how her story sparked a national movement. If red is the color of Canada Day, then orange is the color of Truth and Reconciliation Day. Chances are you couldn't miss the orange shirts anywhere in the country Friday. And you'll probably be moved by the story of how this came to be. For whatever reason, my story was chosen and I've been just doing my best to uh, show up and uh, keep the conversation happening. It started when Phyllis Webstead was six years old an Indigenous girl getting ready to go to the residential school near Williams Lake. Her grandmother took her to pick out a new shirt for the occasion. I remember choosing a bright orange shirt with three buttonholes in front, and it had like a shoelace string in front. And it was bright and exciting, just like a, how I felt to be going to school for the first time. But neither the shirt nor the excitement would last. That orange shirt came to stand for something that was taken from her. So, of course, when I got to the mission to the residential school, my shirt was taken away and I don't have any memory of ever wearing it again. Then about a decade ago, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was asking Indigenous people to come forward with their experiences in residential schools, Phyllis's story of that orange shirt caught on, went viral. It is now part of our history. I look out into this crowd, and every orange shirt is an act of solidarity with Phyllis's story and the experience of survivors. When Phyllis and her family took to the stage following the Prime Minister in Niagara Falls Friday, it was confirmation of the power of her story. The shirt that was taken from a six-year-old girl, now symbolically worn by millions across an entire country. And I've asked everyone to come and stand with me today. Paul Johnson, Global News. The local Tsleil-Waututh Nation marked the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation with a somber pilgrimage in North Vancouver. Members retraced the footsteps of Indigenous children forced to attend a residential school that once stood in that city. Catherine Urquhart reports. They gathered at the site of the former St. Paul's Indian Residential School wearing orange shirts to honor survivors. Survivors like Sam George. The abuse, I suffered sexual abuse, physical, verbal, you know, cultural. And I was very angry and I ended up doing four and a half years in prison. I didn't know how to deal with it. Together they walked eight and a half kilometers to the Tsleil-Waututh Nation Reserve. We just wanted to acknowledge what they had to go through. You know, the walk is minor compared to what happened in the schools. It was a physical and spiritual journey home for the entire community, which walked in the opposite direction last year. So it's kind of like a full circle. We're finishing the work. We're finishing the travel. 
St. Paul's Indian Residential School operated from 1899 to 1959. Slaywith-Tooth Nation says more than 2,000 children were institutionalized there. We are, we are doing our own radar scanning here and archival um, land investigation. Um, you know, people know it through the, the findings in Kamloops, the 215 unmarked graves. We are doing our own, but we're doing it in a way where we're walking with our people. Sam George spent eight years in residential school from the age of seven. You lived in a kind of fear, and you tried to be invisible. And um, because you knew if you got centered out, it would mean a slap in the head or a slap in the wrist or your ears pulled, or your hair. For George, the walk was especially meaningful, as it was a recognition of his painful experiences. This survivor said he feels hopeful as more Canadians learn and reflect on this Truth and Reconciliation Day. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And while the country is recognizing the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, B.C. still has not designated the holiday as a stat. Joining us with more on this is Keith Baldry. And Keith, the whole stat issue is confusing for many people. We discussed yeah. it at length this morning in the newsroom. So let's sort out first what is a statutory holiday and what's not in this province. Yeah, it, there is confusion. And there was confusion just a couple weeks ago, if you recall, when the, with the Queen's funeral. That was a national holiday. Schools were closed, but businesses were open. Same thing with today. So here's a review of the 10 statutory holidays we have in B.C. Every month, with the exception of March and June, has one starting January 1st, of course, with New Year's Day. The most recent statutory day is Family Day, February 21st. It's only been around a few days. And you can see the list as we go on and on. And the final day, Christmas Day on December 25th. Now, there are some days people think are statutory holidays, but they're not in B.C. Easter Sunday, for example. Many people think Easter Monday is a statutory holiday. It is not. Uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is not a statutory holiday, at least not yet. And a lot of people don't know this one. A lot of people think Boxing Day is a statutory holiday. It's not. Now, there are some exceptions to this, Sophie. Uh, collective agreements, for example, union contracts may have some of these days stipulated as statutory holidays, in addition to the ones the government recognizes as statutory holidays. Uh, so not everyone has the same situation when it comes to what a statutory holiday is and is not depending on your contract. So uh, a number of First Nations uh, in BC, Keith, are calling on the province mm -hmm. to make this day, September 30th, an official stat holiday and join that list. Mm -hmm. uh, but the province still hasn't done that. Why is that? Yeah, so this is relatively new. This is only the second such day. We received a statement from the government today saying there's ongoing consultation with First Nations and Indigenous people on what they want this day to look like. And they also know that we, they just wrapped up a public engagement survey with workers and employers to see what they would like to see this day become. I have a feeling, based on the correspondence we received from them, don't be surprised to see this day indeed added to the statutory day list starting next year in 2023. We'll see if it happens. All right, thanks for that, Keith. In Victoria, the Sungis Nation is holding a powwow to mark Orange Shirt Day. The South Island powwow is back for the first time in more than 20 years. It's being held at Royal Athletic Park, where people of all ages are showcasing their strength and the resilience of Indigenous peoples through music and intertribal dances. The Sungis Nation says it's an opportunity to recognize residential schools and the 60 scoop survivors while celebrating rich Indigenous culture. 
We've really branded it as just coming together and supporting each other and really lifting up our survivors, our elders, and just really being here to support them. So yes, we're going to remember, but also at the same time, stand together and celebrate as community moving forward. It's quite moving to see thousands of people from across the region come and, and understand that reconciliation takes more than just acknowledging land or sitting at home. People are here. The South Island powwow is free and festivities are underway right now and will continue into the night if you'd like to go down and be a part of it. Well, a controversial street in Vancouver is getting a new name to mark this Truth and Reconciliation Day. That new name for Trutch Street officially unveiled today. Kristen Robinson shows us why it's being changed and what it means to the local First Nation. The reconciliation is only a word. It's the actions that are going to change. The Musqueam Nation stepping forward with a new moniker to replace a painful sign of the past. And something that doesn't represent anything very nice. Before he died in 1904, BC's first Lieutenant Governor, Joseph Trutch, was considered an extreme racist. His name, says Elder Larry Grant, associated with the trauma inflicted by colonial governments and residential schools. Some of those survivors that come home Trutch Street runs between 18th and 1st Avenues on Vancouver's west side, the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam people. A lot of our, our survivors uh, that went to residential school in our community have all passed away. Chief Wayne Sparrow uh, said, frankly, he was just sick of driving down Trutch Street to get to the reserve because uh, Trutch has such a horrendous history in this province. In July 2021, City Council greenlit Mayor Kennedy Stewart's motion to rename the street because of the racist policies against Indigenous people enacted by Trutch. In Hunkaminum, that is Shmuthwiam Awesome. And then I hope every time everybody else travels down this street, they think and they learn the name in uh, Hunkaminum and then understand the depth and how long uh, this culture has been here. It's a great honor and it's a long time coming. Words are, are great, but when they show up in their presence and it, it works for all of us, and it's, it's little baby steps and it comes forward. It was a long, uh, long time coming, but it was very, uh, very rewarding and uplifting for our community. It's unclear when the Musqueam View name will debut on the street or the cost of changing signs, addresses and land titles, but the Musqueam First Nation says it's been paying the price for 150 years. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Now, Vancouver isn't the only city to make that change. Back in July, Victoria renamed its Trutch Street to Seit Street, which means truth in the Lekwungen language. Also earlier this year, the city of Richmond renamed its Trutch Avenue to Point Avenue in honor of UBC Chancellor Stephen Point, who was also BC's first Indigenous Lieutenant Governor. And we understand these stories might be triggering for some of our viewers. There is support available for survivors and their families. The number is toll-free. It's 24 hours a day, and you can speak in confidence by calling 1-800-721-0066. And on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a charity wants to make it easier for everyone to help. Ceremonies like this one are happening right across the country, but not everyone can attend. 
So last year, a Vancouver man who got the day off work decided to donate his pay to Indigenous organizations. His idea mushroomed and ended up generating half a million dollars. This year, one day's pay is back, funding organizations like Indigenous Watchdog, which tracks progress on truth and reconciliation actions. A lot of Canadians are not sure, and like last year and even still this year, like how they can take action. And knowing that they can put money in the hands of Indigenous organizations that know how best to use it, uh, I think really feels like a significant step. I'd like to see this as an entry point, uh, an opportunity for folks to recognize that their cash can actually be helpful to local Indigenous-led organizations or to the organizations that One Day's Pay is amplifying this year. And you can make a donation at the website on your screen, onedayspay.ca. Border crossings are much busier than they have been throughout the pandemic with the holiday and the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions in just a few hours. Ahmad Agahi is live with more on the backups in Ahmad. Many people waited over an hour today to cross. Yeah, Chris, a quick check of the government website keeping track of border wait time shows the lower mainland border crossings are the busiest in the country today. We'll show you uh, the Pacific crossing right now where the official wait times just over an hour, but people in line have told us two and three hours is how long they've waited. Now, one of the reasons being uh, cheaper gas, uh, we did some math and Right now in Bellingham, it comes down to $1.62 Canadian per litre after all of the conversions. And compared to Vancouver's gas price today, which was $2.36 a, a litre, the saving comes out to $0.74 cents a litre and uh, a 58-litre tank. That's a saving of $43. This, of course, also has something to do with the federal stat holiday today. Many people having the day off work perhaps and seeing this as an opportunity for an afternoon or a weekend trip. Over an hour? hour wow, it's pretty minutes. long. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, going down for a trip or? Yeah, mm -hmm. girls night just for a weekend. Yeah. There's not a whole lot I like less than sitting in a car not moving. It is a I guess it's a, it's a stat holiday and yeah, we set off from Whistler at one. So yeah, we kind of hit prime time traffic. Now, the third reason for these lineups could be the fact that the Arrive Can app is no longer required for people coming back into Canada. So this is the first weekend that that is the case as well. So it's a perfect storm for a border lineup like this. Makes it a lot more convenient to go for sure. Ahmad, thanks very much for that. That's Ahmad Agahi down to the border for us tonight. Well, you think politics is boring? Look no further than Surrey for what could be the most contentious civic election campaign in the province. From SkyTrain to policing to stadiums, the battle lines that will determine the outcome next on the NewsHour. Talk about the Wild West Coast. Incredible video of a clash between whales and orcas coming up. And why it's getting very busy at BC Tire Shops. That's coming up later. Right now, though, the municipal election is just a couple of weeks away and an important race and an entertaining race to watch is in Surrey. A number of well-known political names have stepped up to run against incumbent mayor Doug McCallum, making it a tight race. Richard Zussman has more. Four years. You may not hear it from him, but those hoping to be Surrey's next mayor sure have a lot to say about Doug McCallum. All they have done is spent the last four years fighting over the color of uniforms of police. I uh, absolutely want to bring integrity and 
honesty back to City Hall. This mayor and council pitting one group against the other. With two weeks left to determine Surrey's next mayor, the incumbent turning down a chance to defend himself. The only front runner for the job not to take up the invite to be on Global's weekly political show, Focus BC. Focus BC. I've uh, been working with uh, Doug McCallum as the mayor for the city of Surrey for the last four years, and I can tell you that uh, he's generally a pretty weak leader, a uh, weak individual all around. A lot has unfolded since McCallum took up the invite four years ago, pitching himself to voters last time, winning an election. Forging ahead with a police force change, locking in the Surrey SkyTrain. The SkyTrain that Doug McCallum promised was supposed to come down King George and serve the people of Newton, where 160,000 people live, where there is a real gridlock. Instead of helping the people of Surrey uh, in Newton or South Surrey, he helped the people uh, in Lang, taking the SkyTrain to Lang. And then there are the still not resolved public mischief charges. She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg. The election in BC's second biggest city shaping up to be a referendum on one person. For example, Councillor Brenda Locke promising to wipe out one of McCallum's big promises if she wins, the transition to a Surrey police force. We are going to honour that pledge. We are not going ahead with this transition. It's just way too expensive. I will say yes. McCallum has been showing up at all candidate forums in the community, but not for one-on-one -on -one interviews with the city's biggest news outlets. A clear strategy that could determine whether he shows up on enough people's ballots once again. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Coming up, a helpless senior left to fend for herself. Community health care workers are not showing up for their scheduled shifts. How the case of this loving grandmother raises major concerns about anyone requiring home care. But first, the repeat offender who terrorized the Kitsilano neighborhood last night. Vancouver police say a well-known property crime offender was arrested last night on the city's west side, but not before a number of terrifying break-and-enters yesterday. Jordan Armstrong joins us live with the details. And uh, Jordan, this all prompted a huge police presence. Certainly did, Sophie. A lot of people in Kitsilano heard the police helicopter hovering overhead late last night. It all began, though, earlier in the day. VPD say a woman was alone in her home on 11th Avenue west of Alma when she heard her front door open and footsteps. She went downstairs to discover a man inside her home. The suspect managed to get away with a few things before he fled. Fortunately, the woman wasn't harmed. Then, around midnight, dozens of officers, including dog teams and the RCMP's Air One helicopter, converged on the area of West 4th Avenue and McDonald Street. According to police, a resident there returned home to find their suite had been broken into, ransacked, and their car keys stolen. When they went down to the parkade to check on their car, they found the suspect wearing their jacket. 
Police say it appears he tried to steal the manual transmission vehicle, but didn't know how to drive it and stalled it. Officers arrested the suspect after he ran away. He was found hiding in a backyard. Police say he is a well-known property crime offender. Investigators are trying to determine if the same suspect, a man in his 30s, is responsible for up to four break-ins yesterday, stretching from Kitsilano to UBC. Now, we mentioned the guy was arrested, but tonight, confirmation He's already out of jail. VPD say he was let out on an undertaking to appear in court later because the Crown wants more evidence before charges are laid. And because no formal charges have been laid at this point, Sophie, mm -hmm. at this point we can't tell you his name. Back to you. Right. All right. Thanks for that, Jordan. Jordan Armstrong reporting live tonight. All right. Those in charge of BC's health system point to home care as a way to keep patients out of our hospitals and in the comfort of their own homes. But things can go wrong very quickly. Case in point, a doctor on Vancouver Island says her terminally ill mother was left helpless when her home care worker didn't show up. Kylie Stanton reports. She loves her grandsons. She has three of them and she loves them all very much. From the photos, you'd never know what Marianne Lush is up against. She's lost so much weight and she's so much more frail now. The 86-year-old is a paraplegic, legally blind and terminally ill with an operable cancer but determined to live out her days at home. What requires a great deal of care that her daughter says is not always reliable. We have had situations where community health care workers are not showing up for their scheduled shifts and importantly the family are not being notified. Last week when Lush, who is also a family doctor, happened to stop by her mother's home for a coffee before work, she found her alone. Well, it was, it was frustration and it was concern. Hey Mary. Lush contacted the provider, Sydney Senior Care, that subcontracts with Island Health. She was told someone had called in sick. In a statement to Global News, Sydney Senior Care writes, when you're dealing with thousands of seniors in the home support system and thousands of caregivers, it's impossible for things to go perfectly 100% of the time. Human error and miscommunication, unfortunately, will factor in at some point. Going on to say this is a systemic issue that all of us need to look at and work towards resolving. I've been told by multiple people in the system that they simply cannot keep health care workers in the community. Lush says it comes down to a wage disparity. A home care worker's starting wage is estimated to be about $25 per hour, and they're also required to pay two-thirds of their gas, while doing the same job in a hospital pays $30 an hour. And seniors in the community deserve better. They deserve to be uh, able to stay at home, to have their dignity and their independence preserved. It's best for seniors, it's best for society, it's best for the healthcare system. BC's health minister said Wednesday he was aware of this situation. I'm looking into the case that you've talked about and to the details of it, and I've asked uh, Island Health to report to me on it. Island Health has confirmed it's following up to ensure the established process is followed when there are last-minute changes to scheduled home support visits. For now, Lush has no plans to change up her mother's care, but is speaking out and using her voice, knowing so many other seniors are not being heard. We can't afford to leave it any longer. We have to make steps now to reverse this crisis. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. It's soon going to be easier to access the BC SPCA if you want to adopt a pet. After more than two years of COVID restrictions, hours are returning to normal at community animal centers across BC. Throughout the pandemic, the organization had to find new ways for prospective pet owners to meet the animals. 
And that included virtual meet and greets and appointment-only viewing. But SPCA workers say virtual meetings didn't work very well for all animals. What we're hoping the net result is in some of those cases of animals that don't show well virtually. Um, you know, cats that are more shy don't always, you know, do their best in a virtual meeting or showing up on the camera for photos for adoption. And so we're hoping that being open and allowing that interaction with animals, we're going to help some of those uh, less adoptable animals find their forever homes. Despite the restrictions, a record number of animals were adopted from the BCSPCA during the pandemic. And according to the SPCA, only a few of those adopted pets have been returned as people go back to in-office work. Just ahead, the orange wave at UBC. Why hundreds set out on a long walk from campus next. And the B.C. City offering a service that might help prevent deaths due to toxic drugs. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When B.C. needs to connect, B.C. turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Several hundred people gathered in Penticton to show their support for victims and survivors of residential schools. The walk for the children began at the Penticton Peach and traveled five kilometers to the Silk Okanagan Nation Residential School Monument. The Penticton Indian Band says while resources and education about residential schools have grown over the years, the next step must be concrete action in addressing the wrongs against First Nations people. At UBC, thousands gathered to walk for truth and reconciliation. It was billed as an intergenerational walk with students, their families, staff and community members all walking together to show their commitment to learning the hard truth about the tragedy of residential schools. Here's Michael Newman. Here on the ground main mall at UBC where just a couple of hours ago a orange shirt day walk was commemorated bringing together multiple generations to honor what this day means. And I got a chance to walk the path and, and talk with folks about what they were feeling um, coming to this event today. Take a look. Today at UBC, thousands of people from all walks of life walked with their orange shirts. Students, staff, faculty, and the greater community came together to create a safe and supportive space to show solidarity for those impacted by residential school. I feel like it's really my responsibility to kind of help put the structures in place for survivors and anyone who's like directly feeling the pain of residential schools. Music and dancing invited visitors to bear witness to first-hand accounts of survivors and hear with open hearts and minds the traumatic experiences they endured as people commit to the path of learning and action in truth and reconciliation. The rest of our society walks alongside us and that they have an awareness of, of what this means. And that this isn't historical, this is felt every single day. But also in the air was an uplifting feeling as Indigenous folks expressed their feelings supported by having so many people from the community showing their commitment as allies. You are a witness. And to us, that is a very, very sacred and honorable job to be given. So this, uh, this was a big day. Um, lots of emotions that are hard to hold for many folks. But uh, it's important to note that truth has to happen. Hard truth, unfiltered truth has to be heard and bear witness to before reconciliation can happen. And folks here 
felt committed to hearing that unfiltered truth, to hear some of the ugly truths of people's direct experience. And that is the first step for people to actually feel safe to, to move forward into reconciliation. And so um, there's a real level of commitment from folks, non-Indigenous and Indigenous folks, to stand side by side with one another, to help hear, to bear witness, to help heal, and to move forward as we uh, move into this path of truth and reconciliation. Michael Newman reporting from UBC. Well, the Semiamu First Nation flag now has a permanent home at White Rock City Hall. A flag blessing ceremony was held today, today to mark this year's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The gray weather brightened by the orange shirts of the dozens gathered to show their support. Semiamu Chief Harley Chapel led the ceremony with members of the First Nation also taking part. It's an acknowledgement. It's a recognition of, of, of our family here. And we are all one family. It's an acknowledgement and recognition of our family and our community here in our unceded territory. When we leave here, I want you guys all to look at that word of unceded and what that means, what that really means, and what that means to us as Indigenous people. The traditional territory of the Semiamu First Nation is now divided between Canada and the U.S., with the Canadian side, including South Surrey. The flag will remain a permanent fixture at White Rock City Hall. In Health Matters, today Interior Health is urging drug users to stop guessing and use drug checking services, hopefully to save lives. A region-wide drug alert remains in place following several recent overdose deaths in the area. Health officials say the services are available in eight different locations around the region. The services are free and use infrared light to detect what's actually in the drugs. The health authority says the drugs are always returned to the users no matter what's detected inside. Fentanyl has been involved in more than 85% of overdoses since 2019. Still ahead, a brawl in the open ocean. Marine experts still debating what exactly they witnessed off in the waters off Victoria. And it seems crazy with a week of warm weather ahead, but if you plan to hit the highway soon, why you better hit the tire shop first. Attention consumers having issues with scammers, price gougers, corner cutters, con artists, or big business bullies. Help is here. Andrewa investigates consumer matters on Global News. It might be hard to believe considering the weather we've been having and the weather that's still in the forecast on the south coast, but... The deadline for having winter tires on B.C. highways is almost here. Yeah, it's tomorrow, in fact. The province requires winter tires if you plan to travel on certain highways like Highway 16 and 97. In B.C., winter tires are defined as those labeled with either the mountain snowflake symbol or the M plus S mud and snow symbol. Uh, drivers who don't have proper winter tires on their vehicle on the designated routes can be fined up to $121. It's hard to imagine that we're looking at winter tires right now. The weather's been so nice. We've had the cool mornings, but we have the heat in the daytime. It's kind of like, do I need winter tires on or not? But you know what? Road conditions can change anytime. The weather can change anytime. We're seeing world events happening all over the place right now with weather. Oh my goodness. It's amazing. All the stuff that's happening. But here in our own backyards in the north, we need to remember the fact that the weather can change anytime. So getting those winter tires on between the 1st of October and the 30th of April, having them on is just something that's just like a guarantee. It makes things that much better for you when you you're out there driving. Annual highway rules last until March 31st or April 30th, depending on the route. Might be a bit of a grace period, I'm thinking, given what the forecast looks like right now. Christy's got the details for us as she joins us 
for a look at the forecast. But you need that grace period, really, Chris. By the time you book your appointment, you get your tires changed, a week, two weeks have gone by. And, yeah, the, the weather may have completely changed by then. But at this point, it's looking pretty good. I thought, though, we'll look back because we've had a couple of really exceptional months leading up to now here we are at the end of September. Uh, quick look. So uh, August was an exceptional month as well. And I, I highlight this because it has been so incredibly dry and warm. So a lot of zeros there on the August calendar that you see there. So barely any rainfall. Uh, it was the 18th driest on record, but the key was is that it was the hottest on record and it was the hottest month ever. And then we followed that up with September, which again, have tons of zeros. Normally we'd have eight days or more of rainfall. We only had four with more than a trace and we were the seventh wettest, potentially even drier. We're still tallying the numbers. These are preliminary numbers and the hottest on record. And now we're following it up with this. As we head into the weekend, we could be seeing record breaking temperatures Sunday and Monday where highs away from the water could be approaching 27 degrees and even when the temperatures drop late next week we're still not expecting any rainfall that's why we're showing you those seven days is because we're pretty confident we're going to see seven days of dry weather now North Coast will see some rainfall especially tomorrow but it'll ease on Sunday the rest of the province sunshine with highs reaching well above seasonal values now overnight lows because the nights are longer will drop down and we'll start to see that fog and we we are expecting it tomorrow morning, even in Metro Vancouver, but 26 degrees away from the water tomorrow and tons of sunshine as far as we can see. Enough time for you to get those winter tires on. Tonight's center windows weather window coming to you from Prince Rupert. Laura sending us this one. I thought it looked like a candle, but of course that's a bird on a, on a post there. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, I can see I, that. I can see that too. Well done. All right. Thanks, Christy. A dramatic and rare event involving a group of orcas and humpback whales kept on video. The Pacific Whale Watch Association witnessed the whales harassing each other in the Juan de Fuca Strait, 40 kilometers west of Victoria. Witnesses say they saw tail slapping, loud vocalizations, and an astonishing three hours of breaching. They described the hours-long encounter as unbelievable. At first, the orcas chased the humpbacks, but then the humpbacks charged back at them. Quite a scene. Wow, like whale gangs. Yeah, amazing, yeah, amazing to witness that for sure. Scratch. Okay. Yeah, that is Barry DeLay in for Squire tonight. Hey, Barry. How you guys doing? Yeah, it's, uh, speaking of kind of bringing the physicality, one of the newcomers on the Canucks this season is six foot three, 210-pound Dakota Joshua, whose main job is to hit people, within the rules, of course. I know my, my part is to uh, play the physical game and uh, make it uh, hard for the opponents. Joshua was whacking, cracking all night last night. He had six hits in a fight, and we'll have his story coming up. Whacking, cracking. Also tonight, I felt this amazing wave of emotion come over me. The moment everything changed for a woman who was once part of the 60s scoop, how she unlocked the secrets of her past to get on a healing path. Kraken is the best name. I mean, it's a good one. Really Doesn't rhyme with a lot of things, but whacking it. Whacking it does, yeah.
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Uh, well, Bruce Boudreau, though, is not happy with his team for blowing a 3-1 third-period lead and eventually falling 4-3 in overtime last night to the Seattle Kraken. Uh, more that they got outworked and were lax in the defensive zone, things they want to improve on this year. Canucks, though, get another crack at the Kraken tomorrow night in Seattle, a 6:30 start. Canucks have yet to win in three preseason games. They have four more to go. Well, one of the new players Canucks fans could get attached to this season is bruising forward Dakota Joshua. He is six foot three, 210 pounds. He signed as a free agent in the summer to add size and physicality to the Canucks fourth line. And last night, he was a big hit with the fans and his coach. Joshua plays the puck. Dakota Joshua knows if he's going to make an impact, he has to make this kind of an impact every night. Joshua is already 26 years old, but has only played 42 NHL games over the last two seasons with St. Louis. But he's got a chance to become a regular in Vancouver if he brings the physical game, something that was very obvious against the Kraken. My goal is to to be an everyday NHL player, which I haven't uh, succeeded at yet, so... Um, I'm looking to put my foot down here and uh, make that the case here. That's, you know, why they signed him. And that's, you know, I went up and told him. I said, that's what you have to do. And that's uh, not necessarily fight, but finishing his checks, playing hard, being hard to play against. Those are the things that are going to keep him in the NHL. The Canucks have enough offensive skill to light up Rogers Arena, but that can also be done with a big hit or a gritty fight. That is part of Joshua's game, too. Get the energy up for his teammates and the fans, who were certainly appreciative of his efforts. Um, yeah, you got to love the playing for the fans, and that, that's what uh, the game's all about. So um, anything to, to make them happy is a plus. It's a good first impression for Joshua. He just has to keep it up and be a contributor for a Canucks team that hopes to take that next step into the playoffs this season. Personally thought it was a good fit. Uh, this, the Canucks are on a come up and we're uh, trying to make good things happen. So obviously who doesn't want to be a part of that? And um, no, just trying to uh, fit in here best I can. The Lions are home to Ottawa tonight, 7.30 BC place. The Lions are pretty much locked into second or third in the West, which means they will play Calgary in the first round of the playoffs, and that's almost a sure thing six weeks ahead of the game. So the key for the Lions is to try to get Vernon Adams Jr. and the offense some confidence over these final five games, and hopefully that starts tonight against the last place, Red Blacks. The Whitecaps playoff hopes are still hanging by a thread. They have two games left, have to win them both, and then hope the three teams ahead of them in the standings stumble. But they have to take care of business first, and that means beating Austin tomorrow night in what is likely their final home game in front of a very loyal fan base. First of all, just thank you. You know, obviously we've had our ups and downs all season, but the, the appreciation that this group has for the supporters group and for the fans across Vancouver is, is huge. And, you know, we appreciate them coming out every game and we'll give it everything to the end. And, yeah, you know, we'll bring everything come Saturday. It is a must win, but, I, again, I don't want to uh, the guys to feel the pressure and thinking about something that uh, other results needs to go in a certain way. And then we have to win in Minnesota if we win. No, let's be concentrated on this game. This game is just important enough. Second round of the Sanderson Farms Championship from Jackson, Mississippi. Abbotsford's Nick Taylor, who won this event for his first tour victory back in 2014. He's going to knock the birdie down from 41 feet, although 
this caddy did not do us any favors for television. It went in. He's at six under, and he's in the mix again, tied for 10th. His fellow Ledgeview alum from Abbotsford, Adam Hadwin, needed birdie on his last hole to make the cut, and that's a clutch putt. Lots of pressure to make the cut, so he'll play the weekend. Adam Svensson of Surrey is at five under and in the top 20 as well, so the BC boys well-placed. Fellow Canadian Mackenzie Hughes had the low round of the day, a great shot out of the rough to six feet. He would make that for birdie at the 17th. And then on the 18th, Hughes in tight one more time. will roll in the putt to tie for the lead at 10 under par as he fired a nine under 63. And Victoria's Nick Pavetta starting for the Red Sox tonight at Rogers Center. Jays clinched a playoff spot yesterday when Baltimore lost. They say they will party after the game tonight because they couldn't get one in yesterday. Vladdy Guerrero with the two-run homer. Four-nothing at that point. Jays looking to lock up that first wild card spot lead eight nothing as they play the seventh that is it for sports pretty good for the jays tonight mm -hmm. all right thanks Barry. a 60s scoop survivor who didn't know her own past how she finally learned where she came from and how she's helping others like her that's up next A new program on BC's Sunshine Coast is designed to help Indigenous people who have been disconnected from their communities return home. It was created by a woman who was adopted at an early age and wasn't able to confirm she was Indigenous until she was an adult. After struggling for years to get her status card, she wants to help others who are trying to reconnect with their cultures too. Nitu Garcha reports. It was at this very place, the public market in Gibsons, B.C., seven years ago that Charlene Sinjenko was gifted this paddle featuring Indigenous designs at a fundraising event. I felt this amazing wave of emotion come over me. And that was actually the night that I decided I needed to prove what I, I think I intuitively knew. Senjenko says she always knew she was different. She grew up with adoptive non-Indigenous parents who decided not to tell her she's First Nations. I think there's a feeling when you, you never get a chance to meet a parent. It would be 50 years before she would seek out that truth herself. It was all through paperwork. I had to, I, I found my adoption certificate, my birth mom's name. It said her age, which was 16. And it said, um, just it just said Indian below that. It was a process that took over three years. She's among more than 150 children taken from split scene between about 1960 and 1980 during the 60s scoop. That was a significant portion of the population of her home nation, leaving behind just 300 people in the community. It sparked a movement called the Indian Child Caravan, led by a man also taken as a child from that same community. At that point in my life, I was 13 years old. I honestly thought about taking my life. So in that process, I just lost all hope. His name is Wayne Christian. He's a former seven-term chief who, through cultural healing practices, moved past the trauma and has now spent most of his adult years advocating for Indigenous children. And that was a big push for taking control of our own child welfare and enacting our own legislation. The only one in Canada at this point that does what we're doing. Seeing his work, Charlene got in contact with him last year, and now the two are working together to help others reconnect with their communities by hosting a healing event back here in Gibsons called For the Children. Hey, uh, hey.
they're launching an initiative this fall called Our Nation Heals. Because that's how you change the world, is through the children. A full circle moment for two survivors sent on very different paths now coming together in order to help others come home. Neetu Garcia, Global News, Gibsons, B.C. What a journey. Okay, uh, last word on weather before we go. As we head into the weekend, it, it's going to still seem like summer. And, and it's October, which is so strange, really. Yes, and we could be seeing record-breaking temperatures come Sunday and Monday, so we'll be tracking that, of course. Uh, but the heat is here, so enjoy it. And it looks like we've got dry weather through the, at least the next sort of five, six, seven days. Um, quite exceptional, indeed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't forget your winter tires tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to need them for a little while. No. Uh, and Barry, you working on the weekend? I am, yeah. Lots going on. You got Lions tonight, Whitecaps tomorrow, Canucks are uh, in Seattle. I figured out there is another word that rhymes with cracking, smacking. You can smacking and whack. Yeah, snacking too. Which snack. I and snacking, which lot. you could do a lot of as well, well on the weekend. That's the thing. All right, I'm working tomorrow too, so I'll <laughs> see you then. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend.